This is a commonspace.eu podcast. From the city of The Hague, welcome to Global Europe Unpacked, a weekly podcast about Europe's engagement with its neighborhood and wider world. They find it very difficult to make sense of Europe. They look at Europe and they see fragmentation, basically. Hello and welcome to Global Europe Unpacked, the podcast that helps listeners to understand the global trends affecting the European continent and the growing ambition for the European Union to become a global or geopolitical power. I'm your host, Will Murray, and in each episode we shall look at an emerging foreign policy challenge facing Europe and how the continent can and should respond. In today's episode, we're going to look at the EU's relationship with China before speaking to R.D. Bowers, a sinologist and intercultural communications expert, who will help us to explore how Europe can best handle its relationship with this emerging superpower. But first, where does Europe stand in its relationship with China? My colleague Nina is going to help give some background. For decades, the European Union and China have eyed each other from a distance. Both economic giants in their own right, they saw huge benefit in cooperating with each other, blending their different economic strengths in what appeared to be a win-win situation. More recently, however, China has been acting in increasingly threatening ways. Globally, we see increasing evidence of its military, political and economic espionage. And internally... Its leadership has been clamping down on any signs of dissent, threatening the autonomous status of Hong Kong and repressing any sign of resistance to its policy of cultural assimilation in Tibet and the Uyghur region. Earlier this year, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell called for a more robust policy for China and noted that EU-China relations must be based on trust, transparency and reciprocity. He emphasized, we only have a chance if we deal with China with collective discipline. For the European Union to be a geostrategic player, it needs to be more realistic, assertive and multifaceted in its relations with China. Whilst Europe always felt it was projecting its soft power on China, helping to turn it into a fully functioning market economy and even a democracy, it is now clear that China was busy projecting its soft power on Europe, spreading its economic wings across the continent and positioning itself in a dominant role in several sectors. The COVID-19 pandemic exposed a lot about Sino-European relations, spotlighting China's rise and the urgent need for a considered and consistent EU strategy. Whilst China's handling of the early stages of the pandemic raised questions, the country's attempt at disinformation as the virus spread across Europe shocked governments and citizens alike. The relationship between China and the EU has changed, but what it has changed into is not yet clear. Let's speak to our guest. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Ardi Bowers. Ardi is a sinologist and the director of the consultancy China Circle, specializing in intercultural communication and media. She is the author of the 2016 book Circles and Rechte Leinen about communication between the Chinese and Dutch peoples and teaches on China in the 21st century at Amsterdam University College and on intercultural communication at Xiamen University in China. Hi Ardi, how are you doing today? Hi, hello. So, of course, today we're talking about uh, the EU and the rise of China. Um, So, I mean, looking at the EU-China relationship through the lens of the 2019 EU-China strategic outlook, China is seen as being, at the same time, a partner for cooperation and negotiation, an economic competitor and a systematic rival. What are your thoughts on this description and uh, how has the EU traditionally managed its relationship with China? Looking at China-EU, I think from a European point of view, the old way of looking at China was very much as the land of opportunities. So very much a partner, a business partner. 
Uh, and over the past couple of years, the idea of competitor has been coming up, which has to do with uh, China's rise, uh, of, of course, economic rise, but also political rise. Uh, in 2019, the new EU pro uh, uh, policy for the first time ever mentioned this idea of a, a strategic rival. And this is new, China is being seen as a, a very clear threat to the EU and being called that. Um, uh, people in Beijing were not amused uh, and kept asking, is, is this really how you, uh, how you want us, uh, our, our relationship to be? I think just looking at the way people in, in different European countries and in, in Brussels are looking at China now, on one hand, China is too big to ignore, sort of an idea that we don't really want to be as antagonistic as the US is at this time. But on the other hand, we should not be as naive as we've been in the past. So, so in order not to be naive and to create a kind of better understanding of, of the situation here, uh, you're European, you've obviously spent a lot of time in China. Uh, from your experience, how did leadership of the Chinese Communist Party uh, perceive Europe? They find it very difficult um, to make sense of Europe. Um, they look at Europe and they see fragmentation, basically. On one hand, they say, well, it would be nice to be talking to Europe uh, and, and uh, to have one Europe uh, to, to be able to deal with. On the other hand, they, in practical terms, really prefer bilateral relations. Because in any type of bilateral relation with any European country, China always is the, the bigger party. So what they've been doing is, on one hand, they've been talking about, well, we, we, we like a multilateralist uh, approach, uh, but in, in their deeds, they are bilateral. Uh, so they've been looking at Europe uh, as a fragmented thing and they've been sort of cherry picking basically what countries are most susceptible uh, to uh, to China and it's uh, what what China has to uh, to offer so they're very pragmatic there what is interesting is uh, Xi Jinping who came to power um, in 2012 so eight years ago um, he started this Belt and Road Initiative, and the Belt and Road Initiative is interesting because this so this is a whole idea of connectivity between uh, uh, China uh, and the rest of the world, but the rest of the world is excluding the United States. So it's very much con connecting China, Southeast Asia, parts of Africa and the Arab world, but especially Europe. So China does seem to see Europe as a potential interesting partner. Uh, so, I mean, as you say, the, the Americans are being left out of this Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, the U.S. remains the, the EU's biggest ally. Uh, and the relationship between China and the U.S. is, is as you described, uh, antagonistic. Uh, does this growing relationship of, of some form or other with China uh, threaten the, the relationship with the United States? Um, or will we have to work with China in a specific way to, to make sure that we, we keep the alliance strong uh, across the Atlantic? Um, I think it's interesting to look at this from a, a Chinese point of view as well. So if you look at Beijing and if, if they look at the relationship between the US and Europe, uh, then for them, it's much better if the U.S. Uh, under Trump, uh, which has been the case over the past four years, uh, became quite r radical uh, and anti-Chinese, but also uh, so radical that a lot of European countries um, uh, took their distance uh, and felt sort of uh, alienated uh, from the United States. And from a Chinese point of view, 
that's good. Um, so for them, uh, with uh, a Biden administration, um, suddenly this whole idea of maybe the US and Europe are getting closer together again um, is, is a bit of a, a threat. So it's easier for them to basically divide and rule. So we're speaking about threats here. And recently, we've been hearing about growing threats that China poses to, to the EU and, and its values. How would you categorize the most significant threats that, uh, that a growing China uh, does pose? Um, if you look at values, then maybe the most important thing is that China does not really accept uh, universal values. So they say universal values were... Um, sort of agreed upon by the Western world, basically, uh, after the end of the Second World War, mid, mid, in the middle of the last century. Um, and we think, this is what China says, that that is sort of victor's justice. These were the people, uh, the, the, the countries that at the end of World War II uh, were the victors, and they set up and made all the rules for the rest of the world. And they say, well, we do agree with the um, Covenant on Economic and Social Rights, and they, they signed that and they ratified that, but they did sign the Covenant on Political and Civilian Rights, but they never ratified it. And that is a very important difference where they say, well, economic and social rights for us in China, uh, we think those are much more important and should take prevalence over individual human rights, political human rights. Uh, we think for people to have a shelter and to have access to food is way more important than what you, West, uh, always stress these political, individual political rights. Um, so if you look at values, I think one of the, the, the things from a, from a Chinese point of view um, is that well, what they say is, well, we stress um, collectivity um, and you stress individual rights. Uh, and it clashes somewhere. And and the other thing is, you in the West always tend to talk about rights. Uh, we prefer to talk about responsibilities as well. Uh, so that's basically um, uh, one of the, the really important things is, well, we, and that really is a challenge, uh, there are no universal rights because China says, we think um, uh, those rights you call universal are not so universal. Something else that's, uh, that's at stake is that China's political model, of course, is very different from the Western uh, political model. Um, so, uh, well, we've, we've been looking at democracy uh, and there is a lot of discussion about democracy. What China says is, well, we have a meritocracy. We are ruled and governed by the best and brightest people in China. Uh, and we think that system um, well, it suits us better. We're not going to tell the rest of the world to adopt that system, but it suits us better. And at the same time, uh, and, and uh, around this time as well, they point to um, uh, democracies that are not functioning perfectly, uh, to say the least. So if they, they point to the US elections and they say, well, is that what you, th is that your, your model? And do you really think that we should follow that? It just uh, ends up in chaos. So they sort of gloat about uh, Western democracies that work imperfectly at this time to say so with an understatement. 
And, I mean, people have been speaking a lot about the fact that the coronavirus has, has shone a spotlight on, on the EU-China relationship, uh, some of the tactics that China has been taking against uh, the EU and some of, some of the things that uh, it has been doing uh, out of the public eye before and, and are now coming to light. Could you speak a little bit about what kind of behaviour we've been seeing from China during the coronavirus and what this tells us about their bigger diplomatic approach towards Europe? What you see um, that China is doing in the corona um, uh, crisis, but also in, in, in general, is they sort of weaponize uh, all sorts of relationships. Uh, so they, they take advantage um, of the fact that they have access to certain goods, etc. So in the, in the corona crisis, what you can see is um, it really looked at what friends they, China has or perceives to have in the world. Uh, and um, those friends will get access to face masks and protective gear, et cetera, et cetera. And when a country does something uh, not to China's liking, uh, they will literally stop airplanes full of uh, face masks. So you can call that assertive. Um, I, I think that the term weaponizing um, uh, its strength in, in relations uh, um, makes it quite clear. So um, China has been sort of using the coronavirus to try to create a positive image of itself after it was, um, well, the coronavirus, of course, originated in China. So this was not very good for China's image. So they, they worked really hard to change that around. What you see is that with this face mask diplomacy and also um, uh, sort of not um, giving um, uh, enemies or not friends uh, access to protective gear really has irritated a lot of people as well. So where they tried to get a more positive image, in actual fact, a lot of people in many different European countries were quite irritated by it. So they did give uh, a lot of protective gear to uh, Italy, for instance. Italy also has uh, signed the, onto the Belt and Road Initiative. So Italy was perceived as sort of a friend. Um, and so all sorts of uh, doors open up and then they go to with a camera team go to the airport uh, and sort of film the fact that they they donate these face masks and um, uh, Italians uh, have to uh, to show their gratefulness well if that happens once it's fine but if it happens all the time it starts to irritate others Thank you, Ardy. Um, we've spoken before about this idea of salami tactics. Um, so for the benefit of our listeners, this is a, a divide and conquer strategy where you eat away at an enemy little by little or slice by slice. And before they realize uh, the entire thing is gone. Uh, is this relationship with Italy an example of that? Uh, so, so undermining the cohesion of the, of the European unit by working specifically with favored nations within and then... Um, instilling in them a slightly more pro-China bias, potentially, especially when it comes to uh, unanimous uh, European Union decisions that are made uh, on, on what we should be doing in relation to China. Yes, definitely. So this whole salama tactic uh, idea, um, I think if you look at Europe, um, it sort of started with Greece and the port of Piraeus. So they had um, uh, access or they bought the port of Piraeus. No, Europe itself, uh, European countries didn't want to invest in that port, didn't want to help Greece. China did. Um, so they had that as sort of a, 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 an interesting uh, infrastructure um, uh, project, but also access to the European market. 
Uh, and then they started to open up to Portugal, which was another sort of weaker uh, economy uh, that was open to, to Chinese, Chinese influence. Uh, then Serbia, which has been sort of an old friend of, of China, uh, was interested in all sorts of Chinese investments and the Serbian uh, leadership is really, really very positive about um, uh, cooperation possibilities. So what they do is they, they sort of shop around, look at openings, uh, and uh, uh, Italy at some point also opened up and signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and the port of Genoa is is interesting for China from a Chinese point of view also because it's it's it opens up uh, the European hinterland. Um, so basically, this bilateral approach. Um, doesn't look very menacing at first because it's just, well, okay, how important is Piraeus for Europe? Um, but then you can you can look at it as sort of um, uh, a lot of pearls on a string. If you have acquired uh, 10 pearls on a string, then suddenly it is something quite substantial. Um, so I think from a European point of view, it really makes sense to look at what we think is important uh, to um, to keep into our own hands to to control and what we don't mind handing over to other powers such as China. So we're speaking about bilateral relationships, Italy, Greece. Who else uh, already is is worth uh, thinking about here? Um, I think one very important development is Germany and Germany's role. Germany. Uh, in the past couple of decades um, has been very much opening up to China and, and uh, the, the business lobby has been very, very strong. Uh, China's, uh, China and Germany um, uh, economic ties are very strong. Uh, and I think in the past couple of years, but especially the past year, you see that even in Germany, uh, German business is getting a little bit more critical as well. Um, and I think that has to do with changes in China also. Um, China under Xi Jinping has, has been focusing even more internally than before. Uh, and partly as a result of the China-US trade war or tech war or whichever way you want to call it, China has become aware of the fact that they don't want to be reliant on others. So in the past couple of months, and that's quite recent, China has been starting to, to talk about self-reliance. And this self-reliance means that they want to be able to control the complete chain, supply chain. And that also means that they don't want to depend on the very important German uh, manufacturing uh, and, and machine industry anymore. So you see that China, in this goal of becoming self-reliant, they start to also take some distance from the German industry. And that has um, some consequences for the way German industry uh, approaches China. And that might prove an opportunity within Europe, because all these different European countries are not going to be very influential uh, when they deal with China. Europe really has to have a united stance, or at least a couple of countries have to jointly uh, have a stance towards China. Uh, and I think uh, Germany plays a pivotal role there. 
And in which ways, uh, going on to a more positive note, in which in which areas are the EU and China working well together? Um, and and is, is there potential that, that a positive agenda with China can be developed? Um, or, or is this something which, which, uh, which is going to be very difficult? I mean, for instance, European values, as you said earlier, plays a heavy emphasis on, on human uh, individual rights. Um, this is something that I understand China does not want to speak about. And, and is it correct in saying that that's why it often goes for these bilateral relationships, because it has more power to say, no, no, we're not going to speak about human rights here, but we will speak about telecommunications or, or whatever else it is? Yeah, it's much easier for China to control the agenda when it's uh, bilateral. Um, uh, you, you asked for a more positive note. I think if you look at these values, we've been talking about uh, responsibilities versus rights. Um, I think if, we, if, if you look at the challenges of the 21st century, um, like the climate crisis, like, uh, well, we want to achieve all sorts of millennium goals. It's about sustainability as well. We want a stable world. Uh, there's a refugee crisis. So there are all sorts of crises um, at this time where maybe uh, a collective approach is more um, uh, suitable than uh, just focusing on, on the individual uh, and where responsibility, um, So especially if you talk about climate and sustainability, this is about responsibility as well. So if that is what your core, one of your core values, then that might open up a possibility because that's a shared interest. Uh, so I can imagine that on those subjects, uh, Europe and China could easily work together and, and open up. Um, at the same time, as you say, well, yes, uh, in, in Europe, we do have our own strong values and we shouldn't just let go of them. So I think in approaching China, um, I think it's very important to be very clear about who we are and what we stand for and to draw our own red lines. Um, and if, if just looking at China uh, over, the, over the years, uh, perceptions change. What we've seen in a, in a recent Pew report, a perceptions index, you can see that in the past year, uh, perceptions of China have become much more negative. Um, and I think that has not so much to do with what, what has been happening in Europe, but very much has been a result of active policy in China itself. Um, you've, you've been mentioning uh, Hong Kong and the national security law, Xinjiang, the espionage uh, um, discussions, 5G discussions. Do you want uh, a power such as China uh, to give, give it access to core facilities in your own country. Um, we've been talking about Corona. So if you look at all these, these um, uh, Chinese policies, then you can that had the result of a much more negative view of, of China. So it's difficult to balance the positive and the negative. It's getting increasingly difficult to, to balance the positive and the negative. But I think in the end, it comes down to China is really, really big and basically too big to ignore. I think we really have to come to grips with a world where China is an important player. Uh, and it would be good to focus on these issues where we can somehow make some steps. Thank you very much, Artie. Uh, I think we'll leave it there, but thank you very much for joining me today and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Okay, thank you. 
So, thanks again to Ardi for providing her valuable insights. It seems quite clear to me that if European states are ever going to set the agenda for the relations with China, they must align their goals and speak with a collective voice. But whatever your opinion, one thing is for certain. China is too big to ignore, and as it grows ever larger, the question of how Europe interacts with it is only going to become more relevant. In the next episode, I'll be speaking to Bart Grothaus, a cybersecurity expert and member of the European Parliament, about the ever-growing threat of disinformation. Listen, from a geopolitical strategic point of view, I would never leave any doubt about it. And I would never hand the Kremlin such a strategic victory, because that's what it is. We are going to be speaking about how disinformation affects the European Union, what strategy he would recommend the EU takes against this threat, and what the challenges are to this suggested approach. If you would like more news, analysis, and commentary about the EU and its neighbourhood, please go to our website, www.commonspace.eu, or you can also follow us on Twitter, one word, commonspaceeu. Thanks for listening. Global Europe Unpacked is a commonspace.eu podcast produced and recorded in The Hague, the Netherlands. Thank you.